The Wheelie Bin Worldwide British Special. That's right, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to Wheelie Bin Worldwide. We've uh, we've 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 up sticks and moved to Britain in the hopes of making it big in the land of nepotism and private school pederasty. Uh, now that's not true. Uh, not not the pederasty thing. That's real. But uh, I have no hopes of making it big here. We're not going to do that. I am, however, stuck here for the foreseeable future. And uh, well, I'll get into that. But in the meantime, so it's you know it's been a little while. Uh, how you been? Should have probably recorded sooner, but, you know, me and Lewin's inability to work by a proper schedule being some part of that and adding separate time zones into the equation, you know, not beneficial. So so it's going to be a very special episode today. It's going to, uh, we're going to have a new format, at least for, for now, until I get bored of it next week, and then don't publish anything once again for another month and a half. So what this is going to be for uh, for today, at least, is a, a kind of a personal memoir slash anthropological study slash pro IRA Unabomber manifesto because you know there's really only been one thing on my mind one one subject I've been exposed to for the last three months Jesus and uh and that's 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 the English you know we, these these new people they have now the English uh, who are they what what do they want how are they why are they you know specifically the British I think I don't know the difference between English and British, but particularly when the British keep pretending they're Scottish or whatever. Uh, fortunately, I've been pe- taking pretty uh, scrupulous notes, and uh, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, you know, I thought this used to be a podcast about movies. And, uh, yeah, look, well, there, there will be movie references. In f- uh, yeah, you know what? Uh, speed round. Movies I've watched in my first two and a half months here before I get onto my anglophobic hate screed. And uh, I think, honestly... I think more than anything else I can say, this is really going to illustrate my state of mind and the things that I'm thinking about doing. Here's, here's my watch list after several weeks around the British. All right, Gone Baby Gone. Absolutely great movie about how poor and alienated people don't deserve good things like money or children. Uh, it's a five-star movie. Can't recommend more highly if you just focus on Casey Affleck being a good actor and not a sex pest. Which, is he a sex pest? I don't really remember what happened there, but... None of my business, let's go with Sex Pest and move on. Two thumbs up on Gone Baby Gone. Uh, Falling Down. You know, Michael Douglas. I know uh, a fair few people might say things like, uh, this is a movie about how angry white men are justified in their misanthropic rage. And uh, others say, you know, it's a righteous condemnation of angry white men. And the trick, you know, while watching it, is to think to yourself as you watch Michael Douglas running around the streets, beating up black people and neo-Nazis, is just, does he look like he's having a great time? And, now, you know what, I actually want to do this one with Lewin, so, you know, come to your own conclusions, watch that, four and a half stars. Um, Children of Men, now this one, uh, get very, very critically acclaimed, but to be honest, I, I found it a little bit unbelievable. Like, I know it's sci-fi, but it just seems like... It, it, look, it's a it's a high-concept sci-fi film set in a zany, out-of-this-world future dystopia in which the British, concerned by falling birth rates, uh, become openly racist, elitist, uh, hostile towards immigrants, uh, in, indifferent to the suffering of their fellow man, and uh, hooked on propaganda telling them that they are actually superior and better off than anyone else in the world. 
all while pilfering artworks and artifacts from these less well-off places and leaving everything else to rot. Like, 8.5 out of 10 movie, at least, but I am taking a point off for, you know, the believability problem. I mean, Guillermo, Guillermo del Toro, he's got a hell of an imagination, but, yeah, I couldn't really suspend my disbelief on the prospect of a racist Brit or British government. Uh, the Deer Hunter. Uh, yeah, look, it's good. It's that there's a lot of Russian, like much like The Godfather, it opens on a just incredibly long wedding sequence with with all these bizarre foreign customs on display. Obviously, that's the Italians in The Godfather, it's Russians in The Deer Hunter. And, you know, frankly, if these movies are supposed to be about what it means to be part of a, you know, part of America, part of a country or a society or a culture, I just don't understand what these crazy foreigners doing in the middle of all of it, you know. So 8 out of 10 for The Deer Hunter. Uh, a Fish Called Wanda, great movie, uh, very um, very misinterpreted, I think. You know, the American is very clearly the good guy in that movie. Um, four bags of popcorn, points subtracted for, for, for pro-English bias, but then re-added again for Michael Palin shrieking revenge. Revenge! Uh, Apocalypse Now, yeah, look, you know, Martin Sheen. I, I, I sympathise a lot with Martin Sheen. I think I'm, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm going through a similar thing to Martin Sheen. The longer I spend here in Britain, if you, you know, replace the Nung River for the Cotswolds, Robert Duvall with my sister's new father-in-law, uh, the whole bridge sequence for a drunken reading reception, and this actually is the story of me here, inevitably drawing closer and closer to the truth, that the whole thing, whether it's the war in Vietnam or the British oligarchy, is a scam propped up on a pervasive desperation to be popular and well-liked while also trying to murder people you disagree with. And, uh, finally. Obviously, last on the list, uh, No Time to Die. Uh, no spoilers, obviously, but I did have the privilege of seeing it in the cinemas with my brother-in-law, uh, while he made comments like, Oh, this scene was filmed on my godfather's estate. They crashed about 24-wheel drives and didn't clean up the glass. Hmm. I don't... Remember those first world problem memes from like, I don't know, 10 years ago? What's the equivalent of that, do you think, in this case? 1% one, 1 of problems? But my, my estate was disrespected by a nouveau riche gang of Hollywood perverts. Why don't they go back beneath the stairs where they belong? Oh, you, you, you know that feeling when you donated millions of dollars to force Brexit through and now all of your Maltese maids visas have expired and the only people left on the household staff are as miserable as you are? Oh, that that face when I, an oil baron, refused to stockpile natural gas and fuel oil reserves to save on logistical costs and now my household staff are freezing to death in their quarters. Help, help, someone help me. I forcibly decoupled my country's economy from the largest single market in the world, leading to a dramatic erosion of my country's currency, making it significantly more cost-effective for lorry drivers to retire or move overseas, destroying the supply chain for petrol, food, and just basic necessities of life. How will I get my plump Christmas goose? How will my shithead entrepreneur influencer son be able to drive the Lamborghini I bought him? Onto the Brits. I might make some generalizations about the British in this bit. So the trick is, if you are an English person, if you are a Brit, and some of you are, what I'm talking about, the people that I'm talking about, they're the Brits that you don't like. Okay? Does that make sense? I, I'm, I'm, I'm assuming there's no, like, rich upper-class Brits who would, would even really be able to find this thing. I've, and if there are rich Brits somehow listening to this, Why? It's, it's not for you. There's already podcasts for you. That's why you have the, the BBC Daily podcast, so you can religiously listen to every episode every day while shaking your head in frustration and punching holes through the walls, screaming the words, London-centric pandering propaganda. 
that is the main listenership of the BBC Daily, I'm pretty sure. It's them and people who are currently streaming into oncoming traffic on the M4 while writing deranged letters on the steering wheel about BBC left-wing bias to the editor of the Daily Mail, who I believe at this point is some kind of lobotomized chimpanzee smearing its own shit on the wall. Alright, so, I've lived among the Brits for, you know, nearly three months, and many people would say, you know, that's... That's objectively not enough time to gather a full and holistic understanding of the cultures and practices of an entire people, and I acknowledge that. But I did do an anthropology course in my first year at uni, that took less than three months, and I was still expected to be an expert on, you know, that stuff by the end of the semester, so it only seems fair. Not to mention, most of the people who would say things like that would be Anglo-Saxons, and I'm honour-bound in the name of Celtic pride to dismiss any and all opinions produced by people of dishonour, shame, and Protestantism. That said, for the sake of not appearing biased in one way or the other, I'm going to base this mainly on statistics, that real, real and true statistics, which I found. So I'm just going to share some statistics with you about the British people and maybe an anecdote which is illustrative of those statistics. Here we go. Eight out of ten people living in Britain today believe political correctness has gone mad. Seven out of ten British people believe J.K. Rowling retains some credibility in issues of free speech, even after suing several people in non-consecutive incidents for tweeting rudely about her. Nine out of ten people in Britain today report being somewhat critical of the concept of gender as a spectrum. Nine out of ten British people believe a woman in a t-shirt with It's the Chromosome Stupid printed on the front, attempting to physically assault a transgender food server with a broken bottle while loudly demanding to see their genitalia, is a reasonable expression of such gender scepticism. Six out of ten Brits believe that should the bottle-wielding woman face criminal charges for their behaviour, this would be political correctness gone mad. Now, those are just the facts, ladies and gentlemen. They're, 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 they're just statistics. They're not judgments. They're just facts, you know? They're not good or bad. They're just numbers. So there's no reason to find them offensive or biased. Now, look, I, I, I don't think that political correctness has gone mad in the UK. I think people using the term political correctness gone mad have gone mad because there are culture wars in this country that I've never, like, so absurd that you wouldn't even think to think them up as a joke. They're... Alright, there's an ad going around on YouTube at the moment. It's an ad for Google, which is advertising, like, it's it's okay not to know, it's okay to ask. And therefore, you should be using Google to look up which racial epithets you can say. Right? That's how they're advertising Google, as a slur acceptability measurer. As the ad centers around the question, who can say Wagwan? Wagwan, right? Like, so in this ad, this white dude goes up to these... Just enormous Jamaican friends, and he's like, hey, Wagwan, and they, they all start going, oh, dude, what the hell, what are you saying Wagwan for? Later in the ad, you see the white kid, like, searching on Google who can say Wagwan before showing the dude, like, happily now dapping his group of, again, just enormous Jamaican dudes. I can't emphasize that enough, just massive slabs of jerk beef. Um, yeah, weird, it's just the weirdest shit I've ever seen. Like, I didn't even know Wagwan was a racially alert... I know Chet Hanks got in shit a couple of years ago for talking with a Jamaican patois, but I thought that was more about it being an incredibly weird thing to do, not it being racist. So I did Google, you know, I fell for the trap, I googled who can say Wagwan. And yeah, it turned out there was some cultural bullshit from five years ago, which culminated in journalists having a rapper weigh in because journalists wouldn't stop asking every black person, is it okay for white people to say Wagwan? And the rapper is like, it's not a racial term, but if it feels weird to say it, you probably shouldn't say it just because you're going to make it weird. It's just, just completely artificial, just forced it onto people like, oh, look, here's another word you can't say. 
Unless you're the kind of person who hates being told what they can't say, in which case we just added another racial slur to a steadily growing list which expands every time The Guardian posts another op-ed. Look, if you work at Google, if you're going to do that, like, use an ad to bait people into getting involved in some conflict that they weren't even aware of and probably didn't exist, at least have the balls to make the question he types into Google, like, who was in Paris? Or, or what is the proper name for a pig offal meatball? I highly recommend Googling that one, actually. Uh, instead of the, just this ham-fisted bullshit that was never real until journalists invented it. Because that's what I'm talking about. It's not that PC's gone mad, it's that people wanting PC to go mad will just find something new and make it. They would not stop asking Daniel Craig if he thought the next James Bond should be a queer, black, differently abled woman until he said, maybe we should be writing better roles for queer, black, differently abled women so we don't have to have this conversation every three years. And in response, how do you think that was framed? It was, Daniel Craig says no to a queer, black, differently abled woman bond. Like, there's no problem until you invented the problem and then the next thing you know, my brother-in-law's at the dinner table saying, did you hear they're trying to make a, the next James Bond a queer, black, differently abled woman? Like, yeah, really? Who's doing that? Them. It's a nightmare that you can just watch happen in real time. They did the exact same thing to Idris Elba. Idris, Idris, are you going to be the next James Bond? Well, I haven't got any offers, no. Do you want it to be you? Yes, obviously I want to play Bond. Every British actor does. Do you want the next James Bond to be black? Well, I prefer it not to be important whether or not James Bond is black so that, you know, it doesn't have to be something everyone keeps freaking out over once every three years. Headline, this just in, Idris Elba speaks out, speaks his mind. He says the next James Bond must definitely be a black man. He thinks it should be him and not a woman. Just entirely engineered, ignoring any context to what he said, just twisting his words to mean the opposite. And it's the front page of the Daily Mail and reposted by the Lad Bible once every six hours for the next three straight weeks. And now on to British cuisine. Eight out of ten Brits believe that Marks and Spencer's in-store cafes are a reasonable place to eat a light lunch. Nine out of ten Brits believe 20 Australian dollars for a lukewarm fish finger sandwich with coleslaw and a bottle of water is a reasonable price point. Seven out of ten Brits believe a smoked piece of fish boiled in milk put on toast and then the hot smoked fish milk being poured over the top rendering the whole dish a damp mess of soggy burnt bread with lumps of yellow fish and just the stench of a pier at low tide and the spoiled dreams of an empire in decline is a delicious and healthy breakfast option. Nine out of ten Brits believe standing outside in three degree weather outside a chip shop for up to half an hour for a serving of dried out chunks of heat lamp fish and soggy chips served with curry sauce that's more salt than liquid is a tradition worth of preservation throughout the ages. Yeah, I'm, lo I'm loving the food over here. What more can be said? You know, centuries of history and tradition in every bite. To think, to think of all those Indians, North Americans, Caribbeans, Mesoamericans and Irish people who sacrificed their lives so nobly so we could preserve such noble gastronomic delights as jelly deal, stargazy pie, mushy peas, the poor man's guacamole, tripe, and uh, I, I was at a pub, there was a, there was a Caesar salad on the menu with the option to add chicken or smoked mackerel. What the... Add smoke. Why don't I just cut my tongue out of my head? What kind of creature goes, oh, here's a dish of lettuce, salt, egg, bacon, croutons, and cheese. You know what would go well with this? A big stinking, lukewarm, smoky piece of yellow fish. We gotta have that. We gotta, we gotta class up the dish, otherwise it would be common. It would be common not to force yourself to eat absolute shit and completely ruin the flavor of a dish for the sake of making a salad cost an extra 10 pounds. Disgusting. Upholding the British tradition of eating anything in sight, regardless of quality, taste, or whether it was stolen from the mouth of a West Cork peasant child. And yet, for all their abominable gastric delights, you know, like a couple of years ago when they found out that there was horse meat in, like, the $2 frozen prepackaged meals for an entire family of four, 
they lost their minds. Like, what's, what standard is that to set? You will eat literally the stomach lining of a stock animal and pretend it's a delicacy, but horse? No, can't eat a horse. That's a step too far. Some some English twat published an opinion piece in an Australian newspaper. He was in Perth. He was an English person in Perth, and he, he suggested that Perth has become disconnected from the world because a Perth teenager asked him if, as an Englishman, he eats snails. And look, I know that's the French, but to act like they're a dumbass for thinking you eat snails when one of your national dishes is a pig-offal meatball, the name of which I'm not going to say on the pod, just Google it. Google pig-offal meatball. My point is, these people eat such shit that snail would be a step up. That's my point. But, all that said, I finally tried uh, Chicken Cottage, mainly just because I remember the name from Four Lions, the movie Four Lions, highly recommend. It's as though you just had a Big Mac, completely oblivious to the amount of... Complete flipping idiots. You could have gone Chicken Cottage, proper halal, bargain bucket, six ninety nine. What are you talking about? Talking about Chicken Cottage. There's one where he doesn't say that. And... God damn, that was good. They really do one thing good, and that's frying shit with salt for fat fucks, and they fucking nail it. The 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 perfect balance between the like overly processed, high fructose, fluoride injected factory food of the Americans and the fake gourmet. Ooh, it's a little bit fancy shit in Australia. It's, ooh, we're afraid of killing our key markets with fat fat heart attacks. That kind of Australian fast food. Yeah, you know, the Americans will eat whatever shit they're served as long as it comes within five minutes. If you just get like oil well blowout levels of diarrhea from an American fast food restaurant, they will already have packed Imodium and like a pack of adult nappies. They don't give a shit, it's cheap, they'll eat it. Australians, on the other hand, we want to make it look like we're, we're, we're discerning by having like the fake Angus beef burger on the menu or like giving you the option of like, ooh, the country chicken bacon clubhouse special deluxe. Every Australian fast food, like think of how they advertise it. Every Australian fast food ad is either someone showing up to an event with their family and friends with like a bucket of chicken and everyone going, oh, holy shit, well done, bro, yes. Or like, you know, young attractive parents with two kids who visibly get along and like each other being handed their food by like an eight out of 10, 20 something with perfect teeth. That's what they try to sell you on instead of the real life Australian fast food experience of tapping your order into one of those disease-infested petri dish self-serve screens and having your lukewarm food thrown at you by a 14-year-old with just dire acne that looks like somebody's been playing Battleship on their face and neck, working under a 17-year-old manager suffering from severe anxiety who hasn't showered in days. An American fast food server is just a lost person who has no choice but to keep working or they're going to lose whatever little money of security, probably healthcare that they get. So they're just dead inside. Whether you're nice to them or mean to them, there's barely going to be a difference. They're just, the lights are on, nobody's home. But the Brits, the Brits on the other hand, they are so deeply, deeply ashamed of buying fast food in the first place. They know that the guilt of your being there just has to be offset by like pure orgasmic flavor during the five minutes you spend shamefully shoving it into your mouth before an in-law walks past the Burger King window and texts everyone you know to tell them that your life is falling apart. You walk into a British fast food joint and it's like the 90s again. You, you get served by like a 20-something guy who's chilled as shit. He's probably stoned out of his fucking mind. You order whatever you want. You order like a full family meal box for yourself. He's not judging. He doesn't care. He has no idea who you are and he'll forget your face as soon as you turn around. You could hold him up at gunpoint and if the police don't get there within three minutes, he'll have forgotten about it right he's there he's having a great time you know why because he knows that there's some poor sap working three doors down at a five-star michelin award restaurant who's working their absolute ass off for exactly the same hourly pay right that guy over there in the restaurant he's 22 years old he's losing his hair from stress because he 
I don't know, forgot, he forgot to put some fresh lime in someone's Cotswold organic gin and fever tree Mediterranean tonic water. And he knows that 50 minutes from now, he's going to get a complaint made directly to his manager and his tips for the night are going to be revoked. This guy, the Nando's counter dude on the other hand, he has the rich, thick hairline of a Marvel star on human growth hormone because he just puts burgers in a bag and that's the end of the transaction for him. If the customer doesn't like it, like, what are they going to do? Complain? They're going to make a scene? Are they going to post about their KFC experience on social media where their family, friends and employers can see? Not a chance. Fast food dudes and dudettes, uh, they're, they're the true chads of the UK, possibly the only chads they have here. Nothing but respect for the fast food workers of the UK. Wish you guys the best. Anyway, on to class, the Brits' favourite topic. 8 out of 10 Brits believe that social mobility is possible. 6 out of 10 believe it's inadvisable. 7 out of 10 Brits believe anyone seen to own a 200-pound electric scooter should be disqualified from public housing. 9 out of 10 Brits believe that the welfare state is out of control and the poor who have little should be given less in order to sufficiently motivate them to want more. 7 out of 10 Brits believe that if a homeless man grows hungry enough, he will be sufficiently motivated to become a small business owner or middle manager for HSBC. Yeah, I know, I know it's kind of a truism to say that the Brits are overly class conscious, but for a country that A, repeatedly ranks as one of the lowest in the developed world in terms of social mobility, and B, still has a royal family living off the spoils of the lower classes, it's kind of hard to challenge it, right? Like... You know, in Australia, there's a lot of scepticism about the social welfare programs that we got, but we have them, right? We're pretty conservative as a country, I think. I mean, given how many times you can turn on Current Affair and find 15 stories a day about some dull bludger who spends all of their welfare money on meth and somehow will happily give a statement like, yeah, actually, I'd love them to put up the amount I get from Centrelink. I'd be able to get even more meth, you know? I mean, remember Struggle Street? Remember that groundbreaking documentary series? Remember Slut Cat? That was a great show. You're a slut. Tell the truth, you're Slut Cat. I just remember that one guy who's like, yeah, I'm nearly 60, I've never had a job, I just impregnated a 17-year-old and I live in a council flat. What a hard-hitting expose that was. You know, showing how <laughs> decrepit their lives are while also editing out footage of, like, their people doing volunteer work in the community and instead showing them, like, farting and walking around their living rooms with their pants off. That one was pretty bad, right? You know... For Australia, that was pretty bad. For the UK, that was nothing. You say the word welfare in this country and people's knuckles go white. Before you've said another word, they're like halfway through some apocryphal story about someone their great aunt once met who, you know, claimed welfare for disability while also owning a car. You know, you say the word inequality and it's, you know, meth lab in a council flat using epinephrine pilfered from the NHS pharmaceutical scheme, so we've got to cut that too. You, you, can, you whisper the word unemployment in an empty room and somebody jumps out of the closet or through a window to tell you about someone their brother, uncle, sister, wife's chiropractor met who was a meth addict with 17 children, all of whom they stole from the local maternity ward at the hospital to get more welfare to buy themselves flat screen TVs, methadone and knives for mugging, honest, hardworking, upper middle class communications analysts. And, like, you can try to defend it. You say, well, I, d I don't think, you know, claiming a welfare payment makes someone a bad person. And they're like, do you know what they're like? Have you ever met a homeless person? I haven't, but one littered on my street once and left a, a buckfast tonic wine bottle and an empty plastic sleeve of hobnobs right on my neighbor's nature strip, and it changed how I see them forever. I think you need to get your eyes opened. Uh, so, you know, Struggle Street, again, it was based on a UK series called Benefit Street. 
you know, in the UK, it, and it was brutal. It was punching down as hard as you possibly can. It was like drop kicking a toddler. It's like they they went into one of the most impoverished neighborhoods in the country, misled the participants, and told them they were going to like present them sympathetically, and then just dabbed on them mercilessly, like just showing them in their lowest moments, like robbing stores because they were starving and in withdrawal from drug addiction. At no point do they present like any kind of systemic cause for these people utter alienation from society except for like yeah except for the parts of the system which give these people any money at all that's what they were critical of like, whatever i'm not saying these stories are fake i'm just saying for every methadone mummy with a secret benefits funded lamborghini there's thousands of people who genuinely are trying to drag themselves out of poverty who can't do it because it's not possible you know i i, I know people like that and there's a shitload more of them than there are Baza from Newcastle who gambles away his welfare and steals iPads from school kids to sell for home-baked heroin, right? There's just always this constant implication that just because some people might spend their welfare money wrong, that they should just take more away from everyone who's desperately trying to make a better life for themselves. That's what I think is a disgrace, all right? That's my problem with it, and it's a shitload more pervasive here than it is in Australia. People will happily go around spouting off saying, oh, at a certain point, it's clear that these people want to live like this. They don't want to live my life as a... £140,000 a year senior systems analyst for Ladbrokes who owns three apartments in central London and plays polo on the weekends while staying at my family's country estate. So fuck him, alright? Yeah, maybe I'm reading too far into it here, but I reckon it might have something to do with the word that they use for welfare payments here. Again, benefits. There's an unemployment benefits, disability benefits. You hear that, you're like, what you? so not having a job has benefits. Why am I working so hard? Actually, you know what this calls for. You've seen these people, these, these these poor people, these lower classes. You've seen these people. Bad teeth, bad smell, clothes three sizes too big. You ever, you ever notice how they seem to be walking around while everyone's going to work? I asked a friend, I, I, said, I said, how are these people living if they don't have jobs? And he says, oh, them, they're on benefits. Benefits. You, you lose your job, you get in an accident. Arm torn off in a crop thresher, nobody tells you what to do anymore, no more work for you. The government will just give you money for nothing. For nothing, except the loss of your livelihood and ability to maintain financial independence. You get benefits. You keep your job, stay safe in the workplace, work 40 hours a week for 50 years in a row, no benefits. No benefits, I'll say they are. We're all going to work, stressed out, losing hair, precious years of our lives trying to feed our families. They're out there, middle of the morning, drinking ginger wine in a children's playground. Sounds like a benefit to me. That's 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 my new character. It's a uh, radical centrist Jerry Seinfeld, neoliberal Jerry Seinfeld, punching down as hard as he can at the most vulnerable people in our society, which is still somehow a step up from his usual target of breakfast cereals and mobile phones. Anyway, you know, wherever you are in the world, I just want to point out, I don't understand why there is so much hatred and vilification, and in this country, just open calls for execution for people like Dold Ledgers, who arguably have a net zero effect on the bettering or worsening of society. All right? I don't understand how you could hate them compared to people who have in the past and still actively do make the world a worse place to be. You know, your, your, your Rupert Murdoch, your Tony Blairs, Katie Hopkins, your common or garden variety bankers, journalists, social media influencers, and of course Simon Cowell. Just saying the, the measurable effects of their ruining the world is a lot more obvious than some, you know, dull bludger. And now on to politics. 7 out of 10 Brits agree that Jeremy Corbyn's replacement by Keir Starmer as leader of the Labour Party was publicly sanctioned and necessary. 9 out of 10 Brits agree that Keir Starmer has the charisma and appeal of a ham and butter sandwich on whole grain bread. 
And while 7 out of 10 Brits believe the Labour Party retains anti-Semitic elements, 9 out of 10 Brits agree Starmer's appointment has significantly minimised this anti-Semitism in spite of no individual members being reprimanded, suspended or otherwise disciplined for the anti-Semitism which was taking place during Corbyn's run. On the other side of the aisle, 9 out of 10 Brits believe the Tories are reasonably sceptical of Islam. 9 out of 10 Brits believe Abu Hamza, the hook-handed pro-Al-Qaeda imam of Finsbury Park Mosque, is a reasonable representative of the Islamic religion at large. 9 out of 10 Brits believe the previous statistics were unrelated. 9 out of 10 Brits believe the term POM is a racial slur. 7 out of 10 Brits believe the term towelhead is not. Yeah, so nothing new here, nothing we might not already have known. Corbyn's gone, replaced by a frightened grimace drawn on the side of a red balloon. You know, I think it's just important for people that don't understand UK politics to just keep in mind that in the last election, 2019, the Corbyn versus Boris Johnson one, both candidates had very problematic histories, you know. Jeremy Corbyn carrying with him his allegations and accusations of anti-Semitism, uh, Boris Johnson being accused of racism, Islamophobia, homophobia and sexism, and you know, really, you just compare their records, they're just as bad, you know. Boris Johnson called black people pickaninnies with watermelon smiles. He called Muslims in burqas letterboxes who look like bank robbers. He said women only attend universities to find husbands. He said Muslim people need to stop being Muslim in order to fit in with the UK. He accused women of voting Labour so society would let them be more promiscuous. He said they only vote Labour because they're attracted to young Labour MPs. Both of these in an article in which he was rating the attractiveness of women at a Labour Party conference. Boris Johnson called gay people tank top bum boys, he equated homosexuality with bestiality, and he openly opposed efforts to decrease discrimination against gay people in the workplace. So yeah, you know, he has a bit of a problematic record, but Corbyn, Corbyn was just as bad with his anti-Semitism. You just look at the worst things he's ever been directly accused of. You know, Corbyn pronounced Jeffrey Epstein as Jeffrey Epstein, and he attended pro-Palestinian events with Holocaust survivors, rabbis, and Jewish labor members. So yeah, they're just as bad, really, honestly. Like, they're just as bad. How could the country decide? So, but, you know, they've they've balanced that all out now, you know. They took control back, they booted out Corbyn and got Keir Starmer, who knocks another two points off Labour's polling every time he opens his mouth. And, you know, he's 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 earned his place as old Keir. Keir, what a weird fucking name. Now, he's earned his place as old Keir. He's a former lawyer, former prosecutor, former head of the Department of Public Prosecutions. He's, he's eminently qualified for the job, you know. Highlights of career include uh, refusing to charge officers that shot dead a Muslim man who they thought might be a suicide bomber and then attempted to cover it up. He refused to charge MI5 agents for torturing a Pakistani civilian. He refused to charge a cop who killed a man by cracking him so hard with his baton that it caused internal bleeding and left him to die. Uh, he abandoned the prosecution of 13 cops who set up three innocent men for murder and lied in court to get a conviction. Uh, he refused to investigate police infiltrating and escalating environmental protests. He personally made the decision to charge someone with making terroristic threats for a joke on Twitter. And he altered guidelines for improperly claiming welfare, enabling them to face up to 10 years in prison. So, you know, just great guy, solid dude. That's, that's what we need from the left wing of politics. That's all the bona fides I need, and I'm sure he'll make a great prime minister if everyone just forgets who he is and what he looks like and just, you know, kind of accidentally votes him in by pure happenstance. No, but it is great here. You know, the, the British, the Westminster parliamentary system, it's been replicated all over the world. And, you know, you've got to love this system in which 70% of the country is represented by the most qualified people, the private-schooled Oxbridge fops. And the public is, you know, it's, it's aware of that, obviously. Etonians especially, as in somebody who goes to Eton College, the private high school for rich kids, the, uh, the kind of alien queen of uh, sexually predacious elites in the, in the UK. There was this article last week that finally asked the question, we were all wondering, you know, it asked, 
do Etonians face bias in the wider world? Because some Labour MP said she hated the racist, homophobic Etonian scum who run the country. Uh, in response, every Etonian fucking journo, opinion writer, columnist, politician with a Twitter account came out of the woodwork to deliver just the most banal responses imaginable. Because apparently, people who go to Eton didn't ask to go to Eton, and now they face discrimination and prejudice for something they didn't choose. There was parents writing in saying families with children attending the fuck it, the top independent schools actually receive a label which sticks with them for life and they're they're at a disadvantage to people who went to public state schools which what, what do you even make of that i just i'm being discriminated against for my privilege yeah dude you're the victim that's how it works i i a mere workaday sub-editor at the sun scraping by on a paltry seven hundred thousand pounds a year to voice my highly personalized anecdotal grievances i am the true victim of economic inequity in the uk there's you know there's a scene from silicon valley i think really sums it up i'm getting a little tired of this bias against the leaders of our industry look at history do you know who else vilified a tiny minority of financiers and progressive thinkers called the jews wait, wait a minute did you just compare the treatment of billionaires in America today to the plight of the Jews in Nazi Germany? Absolutely. One could argue that billionaires are actually treated worse. And we didn't even do anything wrong. We're an even smaller minority. There's a lot more of them. These are facts. Uh, yeah, I, 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 I hate it. I hate it. <laughs> I hate this shit so much. You no more choose to be Etonian than you choose to be black or gay or a cervix habit. An opinion writer has said in response, I love that. You know, they're willing to concede every other culture war, identity thing. They'll accept all races are equals. They'll accept all sexualities are valid. They'll even concede that gender isn't linked to biological sex as long as they don't have to debate anything about their social class. Fuck these people and fuck this place. Oh, my favourite comment from someone responding to the original post about Etonian scum. Doesn't matter about the background. Nice people do not speak like this. Yeah, you're right, you know? Doesn't matter if a critical mass of racist nationalists and egotistical posh boys manage to force through Brexit, a, a self-destructive policy of pure spite, which is currently wreaking havoc on your economy, with supermarkets struggling to keep their shelves stocked, manufacturers running out of raw materials, motorists having to queue up for capped supplies of petrol like it's the 70s. Doesn't matter if you live in a country with a childhood poverty rate of over 30%. Doesn't matter if inequality is more entrenched in your system than like 90% of the developed world. Doesn't matter if you face a constantly rising retirement age to the point that by the 2040s the retirement age will likely outstrip the median age at death none of that matters as long as you just don't get angry about it and just speak nicely to the people that would drive the world in the sun just to keep their hands on the steering wheel and now brexit sorry i took a bite of a muffin i thought i had time six out of ten people voted for brexit we know that obviously but did you know of brexit voters nine out of ten don't regret their vote in fact, 8 out of 10 say they would still view leaving the European Union positively as long as they retained access to the single market, freedom of movement for people, goods, services and capital, and membership in the EU. 7 out of 10 British grocery stores have had difficulty in keeping their shelves stocked, and 8 out of 10 shoppers have noticed increases in prices. 
9 out of 10 British pub, restaurant and hotel owners don't understand why it's become harder for them to find staff willing to work 50 hours a week at £9 an hour. 9 out of 10 Brits are still shocked that there's so many Muslims on the street even after Brexit was finalised. 8 out of 10 Brits are shocked that cutting off their access to freely traded goods and services from throughout European member states has not led to mosques crumbling to the ground and cheaply cladded, highly combustible apartment buildings haven't risen from where they lay. In fact, 6 out of 10 Brits now believe that we live under Sharia law, that Boris Johnson secretly wears a burqa in private, and both he and Sadiq Khan make blood sacrifices and fornicate with the devil at night. Nonetheless, 7 out of 10 Brits would still rather vote for Boris than radical communist anti-Semite Jeremy Corbyn. So, Brexit, you know, it's um, it's a tough topic to talk about, you know, it's, it's, it's tough to assign blame over Brexit. You know, who is to blame, if anyone? Is it the fault of nostalgic older voters who have seen their quality of life diminish in the last 40 years? Is it blue-collar workers and farmers, manufacturers facing alienation through wage stagnation and increased corporatization? You know, was it, was it weird conservatives who don't believe in climate change, racial or gender equality and think Sky News told them to vote leave with no ulterior motives just to show the feminazi SJWs up? Was it a complete lack of coordinated opposition from the bloodless centre-left upper-middle-class liberals so sure of their superiority that they literally couldn't envision themselves losing? Or was it privately educated millionaire politicians who saw a chance to seize political power by riding around in a big red bus to increase their own personal popularity simply by pretending to stand something with no actual regard for the consequences or even really the results of the vote? Or was it the upper classes really not taking a side at all since they stood to benefit either way, either from increased trade with Europe or from their ability to capitalise on post-Brexit trade deals, market volatility, real estate, and every other thing that would go tits up so they could slit the carcass open and gut it for parts? Who knows? Well, I do. It's the last two. It's the last two. It's, it's all of them, a little bit, but it's mainly the last two. No, I, I really do love this system here where you can you can essentially boil down every apparent culture war to just an incestuous love affair between amoral posh boys who find a way to profit off of everything. You know, you you can see it with the lorry driver shortage right now. Like, we're, they're, 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 the UK is down 100,000 drivers to get things from point A to point B. Just supply chain breakdown leading to food shortages, increased prices, they ran out of fuel for like three weeks there. Down 100,000 drivers can't deliver basic goods to half the country. Whatever shall we do? Should we should we raise the wages and the benefits and make 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 driving a truck a more desirable job for people? Uh, no, no. We'll uh, we'll reach out to the government and get them to subsidise us to waive just basic safety laws and let us drive our workers even harder. Get them to get them to deploy the national guard to do the job for us. And, and the government will do it. They won't take any kind of stand to say like, well, no, you cause this, you fix it. And why would they? You know, they all went to the same schools. They all had the exact same worldview. They're all mates. They, they they literally couldn't give less of a shit about the rest of you. Just blame COVID for it and move on. And I'm not saying these aren't issues related to COVID, but COVID isn't the problem because the shortage started before COVID. But it's a, it's a pretty convenient cover so they don't have to say to people, well, this is because of Brexit. Uh, you mean the Brexit that you told us to vote for? No, it's COVID. It was, it was, it was because of COVID. Everyone knows that. Welcome to Britain, home of the stiff upper lip, where your indignity and existential rage is fine. It's perfectly acceptable so long as you keep it to yourself and don't bother the elite. And now infrastructure, the nervous arterial system of a postmodern globalized world, or something. I don't fucking know. At any given time, 8 out of 10 Brits are furious at the state of traffic on the M4. 
9 out of 10 British people have a savant-like ability to visualise a map of every road, highway, freeway, motorway, tollway, ring road, fire road, trunk road, and unnamed and unaffiliated land passage over the entire country from Plymouth to Inverness with the approximate accuracy and routing ability of a circa 2006 TomTom -tom GPS. However, 9 out of 10 Brits are dissatisfied or very dissatisfied with roads in Britain. 1 in 10 raise issue with congestion, 2 in 10 raise poor maintenance, potholes and flooding, 3 in 10 raise constant roadworks required to fix up the roads, and 4 in 10 take issue with the Hart 80s FM station receiving poor coverage in the London outskirts. 9 out of 10 Brits accept that driving across half the country for up to 3 hours at a time is a reasonable commute to workers in commercial hubs such as London or Manchester. 8 out of 10 British people are dissatisfied with the public transportation services, with complaints including ticket prices and frequency of services. 9 out of 10 Brits believe it cheaper for a single person to drive and maintain a motor vehicle compared with the cost of daily public transportation from outside the London CBD. While 2 in 10 claim the 1990s privatisation of British railways is the cause of the skyrocketing cost of regional transport, 8 in 10 believe increasing costs are due to the government failing to adequately subsidise the railway services they sold to corporations who claim to be able to run services cheaper, more frequently and more safely, while still pocketing a hefty sum on the side. So, definitely a lesson to be learned in there, you know. Uh, you know, in the in the city of London during the night, the, the, the population is in the hundred thousands. During the day, it's up to millions from commuters and tourists. So, you know, there's there's one estimate of uh, 800,000 commuting workers every day, all, all trying to drive and bus and train into like three square kilometers of city. And I, I think it's fair to say that the systems are not designed to accommodate this. You know, the the buses are cheap, but there's capacity and speed limits. The the trains, the, the cost of the vast majority of train services has risen by over three times the rate of inflation. That's on average. In some cases, a lot more since they were privatised in the 90s. You know, make of that what you will. Nobody's too keen to pay £90 per day to take a train that doesn't even get you all the way to work. So, you know, ag again, not necessarily the fault of private corporations taking over the rail system. But it is, though. It just, it just so obviously is. It just, I don't understand these systems where you, like, take something that is a, a public service and you, you think, why isn't this making more money? Because it's not supposed to. It's a public service. It's supposed to best serve the people, not cut costs and squeeze out whatever profit is possible, you mongs. It's, just, it's supposed to be a viable alternative to clogging up the roads with your shitty VWs. It's just... And the roads themselves are fucking tumultuous because I don't, you know, you get outside of the main cities, you get outside of London to the motorways through the southwest, and suddenly half the roads are like one car wide with a 60 mile per hour speed limit. Whether that is dangerous or not, and it is, it's harrowing honestly, there's still just congestion everywhere. And, you know, I've, I've asked, I've said, you know, why don't they just make the roads just a little wider, just add another lane? Because huh, I'd say at least, no, I'd say the majority of roads are through fields and forests and glens. I don't know what a glen is, a, a, a gully, dales and vales and dells. And, like, there's room for another lane. And half of them are lined by hedges too, which, you know, imagine what that does to your sight lines when you're approaching a corner and there's an eight foot tall hedge lining the single lay road that you're barreling down at 60 miles an hour. It's like I said, harrowing. 
I said, how come they don't just, you know, widen the roads? And the responses I got from native Brits were like, oh, yeah, we could, we could, we could. But a lot of these are all Roman roads and people have been using them for thousands of years, even though we covered them with asphalt. And there's, in fact, there's probably nothing of the original, of the original Roman road left. And, you know, no, I'm sure they have been traveling along them for thousands of years. I, I appreciate that tradition that you're upholding there. But I would also say that the roads were, were built for a Roman settlement of like 3 million people countrywide, 60,000 of them in London, of whom maybe one in ten used a carriage. That infrastructure really doesn't hold for a 21st century country of nearly 70 million. And I don't know if the the traditions of people, who you probably aren't even related to, given the whole, you know, Roman settlement, Germanic invasion, Celtic assimilation, Viking invasion, Norman invasions, Dutch invasions... I'm just saying it's nice to hold on to your traditions, even if you are, at best, as native to Britain or as Roman, as Elizabeth Warren is Native American. Even if you are, it doesn't really hold up when you're driving for three hours over pothole-riddled stretches of Swiss cheese tarmac to get to your job as a junior marketing manager for Schweppes. Like, maybe the demands of the 21st century are slightly different from those in the 3rd. I, I just at some point you have to give over to basic logistical concerns. Not to mention, it's a little weird. In fact, it's very weird for a country to be holding on to their history this tight, like white knuckled tight, so tight they're bursting blood vessels in their corneas. It's weird to be this into your own history and tradition for a population that just forgot how sewage works for a thousand years. You know, the, the Romans built sewage systems, underground sewage systems, in a bunch of British towns, and then they fucked off because of the whole collapse of the empire thing, and the Brits left over when, uh, nah, you know, just <laughs> foregoing just basic sanitation for the ease and convenience of shitting in a bowl and throwing it out a window for someone else to clean up, and, you know, causing and exacerbating constant plagues and epidemics all the time. It just seems like tradition wasn't so important when you felt like taking a dump out of an open window, or when it came to wiping your ass afterwards. You know, the Romans got the, they got sea sponges, they put them on the end of the stick, and they sanitized it afterwards with vinegar. Imagine what they'd say to come back like a thousand years later, and these grotty Middle Ages Brits are wiping their ass on bits of cloth and animal hide. And now it's the 21st century, and these same animal fur ass wipers are looking back on third century Britannia being like oh yeah you know they had the right idea we need to uphold their traditions but I do kind of get it given given the 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 Brits own greatest cultural achievement since the Romans left was probably like discovering three more of those courtly dances where you stand in a line and clap and what was the fuck of <laughs> What was the fucking point of those? You gotta, you gotta show your ability to do a dance exactly as other people do it. Like, look how well I can follow instructions. Like, who was it that heard music and went, oh, you know how best to uh, participate and express my enjoyment of this this seventh century, fifteen minute long lute ballad to stiffly stand in place and rigidly clasp hands with my betrothed whose father is selling her for six hectares of Sussex loam. That This will get us both in the mood, I'm pretty sure. I, I bet what happened was one day they saw there was like some rich folks, they went out and they saw some poor bugger in a pub dancing and having a great time to like some pan flute poker medley, and this dude was killing it. He was, he's, he's doing the running man, he's, he's voguing out, he's 
He's teaching them how to Douglas. He's leading everyone else in the 7th century equivalent of the Macarena. And these rich fuckers saw the pores having too good a time and were like, ah, no, that's wrong. That's not how you dance. We we are the best at this. So we're just going to change the whole paradigm and we're going to make it so, you know, how good you are at dancing is how technically precise you are. And we're going to spend 20 hours a week practicing so no peasant can ever be as good as us. And And then that became the thing. No, like, no wonder they loved bards so much back in the day. No wonder bards were so, like, rich and respected. It just fucking anything. My, my kingdom for a new song to step back and forth and clasp hands to. And now, the coronavirus. 9 out of 10 Brits claim the pandemic has had significant adverse effects on their quality of life. When asked to describe these adverse effects, 1 out of 10 Brits cited the 135,000 deaths suffered by the UK population, while 9 out of 10 Brits cited No Time to Die being repeatedly delayed from wide release in theatres. Yeah, that was, a, that was a quick one, because, you know, we're all sick of COVID, we're culturally exhausted talking about COVID. I, I, I had my sister's new mother-in-law, her and her uh, tipsy friends. Oh, why don't you why don't you write something about COVID? I was like, because there's no interest in it. Like even even when there was that like weird plethora of, of, of TV shows doing COVID specials, it was already just like, ugh, who, ca- uh, who cares? <laughs> who, who is this for? that like, like who is that narcissistic that they need to see their favorite characters their out of this world escapist realities just reflecting their exact own experiences back at them like thinking that you might have a a novel perspective on something that the entire global population is going through that's like the worst kind of you know writer director egotism and you know what what's the point who is that for do we need to see the 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 what we do in the shadows gang have to have to self isolate because they make a new immunocompromised vampire friend? Is is there is there a big call for Saul Goodman, Jimmy McGill to to learn to navigate the the complexities of court proceedings taking place over Zoom? Who who is it that that demands that the boys from the boys should spend Six episodes getting paranoid about a sniffle and continually just doing lateral flow tests and informing their close contacts when they get a false positive. It's 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 not necessary. It's just it's shit entertainment. Just do yourselves a favor if you're a TV or a movie writer out there. Pretend it never existed. All right, it would just be so much easier. So that being said, I think I can sum up the UK COVID experience in like thirty seconds. We know how it went. It went, you know, it's not a problem. It's not a problem. It's not a problem. Oh, 1,100 deaths a day. All right, lockdown. Let's do a lockdown. Do the lockdown. Pay people to stay home. Do the right thing. That's all good. All right. Actually, you know what? Seems like it's wrapping up here. So back to work, everyone. No need for restrictions or a whoop, 600 deaths a day. All right, back to lockdown. Okay, back to lockdown. All right, cases have stopped increasing. We're pretty stable at 600 a day. And besides, it's Christmas, so we're just going to let people, whoop, 1,400 deaths a day. Back to lockdown, folks. All right, well, a few thousand people dead. That's a shame, but the show must go on. So get your vaccines, guys. All restrictions are now non-mandatory and have a good life. Yeah, and, and, and some people still question it as though there was no strategy in place. And, you know, it's just doubters. It's doubters and pedants believing that the frenetic announcements of lockdowns were just a desperate ploy to keep afloat the economy, which desperately needed a post-Brexit boost so they can continue to pretend that doing Brexit actually was a good idea, even as fuel and food supplies started drying up. 
But, you know, here we are. The success of the program has showed itself. We, you know, leveled out here at only 100, sometimes 200 deaths per day, you know. Only half the supermarket shelves are empty, only a quarter of filling stations are empty, and you only have to line up for your 30-pound cap daily allowance of fuel for 20 minutes. The system worked, folks. Don't act like this was never the plan. The media. 9 out of 10 Brits believe British media is too London-centric. 8 out of 10 Brits believe that the media is biased towards either the left, the right, the cosmopolitan elites, or the uneducated farmers. 6 out of 10 Brits get their daily news from the BBC. 9 out of 10 Brits consider themselves very informed about the issues in the world. And 9 out of 10 Brits believe potato blight was the primary cause of the Great Famine. 9 out of 10 Brits believe Daily Mail-style Americanization of mainstream media has had some adverse effects on news reporting. And while 5 in 10 British people agree that British news media has some problem around racism, 8 out of 10 people living in the UK today believe Meghan Markle should be executed by firing squad. Interestingly, 7 out of 10 don't see a correlation. 9 out of 10 Brits believe popular culture news is over-prioritised by television networks. 9 out of 10 Brits believe a focus on celebrity and gossip news erodes faith and dignity in news media. 7 out of 10 British people believe television networks pander to the lowest common denominator. 6 out of 10 agree with the statement, primetime television on free-to-air networks is unwatchable. And yet, 9 out of 10 Brits tuned into the Love Island finale to see whether Millie and Liam would take home the prize. 8 out of 10 later got in fights on social media over whether Kaz and Tyler coming last was a racially motivated hate crime. Yeah, you know, I don't have much on this. Everyone gets the news they trust, everyone knows what's going on, everyone knows who's to blame. And yet, somehow, everybody has a completely different answer to all three questions. If you, if you want a truly British experience, I highly recommend watching Love Island with any middle to upper middle class Brit. Every five minutes, they will make a comment along the lines of, you know, this is actually boring. It's, it's just bad TV. It's not pleasant to watch. You know, you should do that. And then you should go back and watch it with them the next night and the next and the next because they will never stop watching. They know all the characters' names. They know all their histories and backgrounds. They know their personality quirks and how their relationship is going to go and what is probably going to happen between Baz and Persephone next episode while simultaneously despising Love Island and believing it should be pulled off the air. And now, foreign policy. 9 out of 10 Brits agree with the sentiment, I don't want my taxes going off to Bongo Bongo land. 8 out of 10 Brits are troubled by the recent military pullout from Afghanistan. 9 out of 10 Brits believe that Western military forces should continue slaughtering civilians until every mosque between Turkey and Thailand is in ashes. 6 out of 10 people living in Britain today believe political correctness and racial pandering were a primary factor in the decision not to deploy nuclear weapons in Afghanistan. 8 out of 10 Brits believe that the thousands of soldiers lost, wounded or traumatised in wars in the Middle East that they lost by every metric can be attributed to military leaders not wanting to win badly enough. 8 out of 10 Brits believe the deaths of members of the UK armed forces in Afghanistan were unnecessary. 7 out of 10 Brits agree with the description of the UK armed forces as lions led by donkeys. 9 out of 10 Brits also believe we should bring back conscription and national service in order to add more lions to the calculus. 2 in 10 Brits are aware that their forces pulled out of active deployment in the Middle East 7 years ago. So, you know, I've got a lot to say about Afghanistan. Uh, not so much as the Perth Snowstorm warnings page on Facebook did a few weeks ago, which was just open support for the Taliban. Can somebody actually check in on them? I'm still unsure whether that was a bit or not. Anyway, uh, yeah, I'm going to keep the majority of my opinions about the Taliban to myself. I'm not going to speculate that drone striking suspected suicide bombers that turn out to be aid workers employed by US non-profits and killing eight of their kids, some as young as two, is collateral damage. I'm, I'm not going to speculate that that's why 
the rest of the family and the rest of the country really would feel morally justified in joining the Taliban. I'm not going to say that. I'm just going to say that in the weeks preceding and following the US withdrawal, I have never seen a more united media going so hard on saber-rattling jingoism since 9-11. When I saw a Channel 4 news anchor interviewing an Afghan woman who was on the ground in Kabul about whether she resented the US for withdrawing, I thought, that's pretty good journalism. When she said no, and he asked the question another three times, I thought, that news anchor needs to be conscripted and sent to serve in the Hindu Kush, right? That's all I'm going to say. And now, on national identity. Nine out of ten British people living in Britain today consider themselves to be Scottish, Irish, or French. Nine out of ten British people living in Britain today who consider themselves to be primarily Scottish, Irish, or French nonetheless speak with the exact accent of Maggie Smith in Downton Abbey. 9 out of 10 British people living in Britain today who consider themselves primarily Scottish, Irish or French who nonetheless speak with the exact accent of Maggie Smith in Downton Abbey primarily use their Scottish, Irish or French heritage to justify character faults, fits of rage, alcoholic dependence or love of shooting small furry animals. Yeah, I've got nothing to say about that, only that it's... It is hilarious to hear these words combined with the accent You'll never match the iron liver of a strong Scottish woman being issued by a blonde Anglo-Saxon Brit with the precise elocution of a Monty Python aristocratic fop. And now, social etiquette and custom. 8 out of 10 Brits expect detailed answers to questions such as what are your career plans and what line of work are your parents in? 6 out of 10 simply have to introduce you to their friend, cousin, nephew or uncle who's actually quite well connected in the industry that you expressed a fleeting interest in and will attempt to connect you via email within the next two business days. 8 out of 10 Brits sit on the board of a local charity or trust attempting to treat PTSD in Middle Eastern veterans by sending them on ski holidays to Slovakia and would love to tell you all about it. 2 in 10 will tell you about it because you seem interested, the remainder are more interested in detailing their own overwhelming benevolence. 7 out of 10 British men and women report feeling some antipathy towards people not currently wearing a button-down shirt with a small man on a horse with a stick embroidered over the heart. Yeah, it's, uh, that's, that's one thing I've learned about uh, networking in Britain, is that everyone is constantly trying to present themselves as, like, a very important key figure, industry leader, tastemaker, groundbreaker, mover and shaker, when they're really just a wanker, all right? They want to give you advice. They want to tell you exactly how you can achieve your aspirations, even if they're not actually yours. They don't actually have any idea. They got all of their breaks from nepotism, but they still want to tell you exactly what you should do. And the thing is, you can tell the difference between somebody faking it and someone who actually has the capacity to, like, make your career. Because the person who could make your career has no interest in telling you about their top 10 tips to success or really offering you anything at all. If you ever happen to be in conversation with a Brit and they ask you, what do you do? And at the end of your answer, they start their sentence with, oh, I actually run. Do not trust that person. You're about to lose an hour of your life in meaningless conversation that leads to nothing. So that's it. Yep, that's that's it. That's that's what I've learned in my time here so far. Uh, like I said, I'm not casting judgments. I'm not casting aspersions. Um, you know, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with how the Brits live their lives. What I would say is that I hate it here, and anybody who would choose to live here is mentally ill. Uh, me, for example, me, I would never choose to be here, but I am here. And uh, well, let's go with I'm here for my sister's wedding, right? And yep, she got she got married. She's in the nobility now. She literally had the ceremony on a billionaire's estate. The the billionaire himself rocked up to the reception in his helicopter and parked up by the house while we were doing the photos. 
And, you know, I know based on the things that I've said, uh, it would seem like to avoid accusations of hypocrisy, I would be somewhat obliged to at least attempt to murder him. I know that. I know, and I know that the fact that I didn't, it's a betrayal of my principles, really. But, you know, you have to do these things for family. You have to refrain from strangling oligarchs. Uh, that, that was my wedding gift to my sister, really, in a big way, me not murdering the host. Um, I'm not really sure she appreciated that. So in my opinion, we're settled up. Uh, in fact, you know, really, this whole trip has been one long extended betrayal of my principles, traveling outside the country in the middle of a pandemic, staying in Airbnbs, signing up to Disney Plus because I wanted to watch Buffy the Vampire Slayer, uh, playing fetch, playing fetch with a dog that I later learned used to belong to Prince Philip. I, I, I'll, I'm, I'm going to tell you what, I didn't see that last one coming because that's not a joke. You can't, you can't even play with a dog in this country without accidentally supporting the oligarchy. But, you know, karma comes for us all in the end, and it really did because no matter how much I despise living here, my flight back has been cancelled unceremoniously and I'm stuck here till April. That's no, no bullshit. That's, <laughs> I got to get a job, I got to get a place, I got to, you know, they underpay hospital workers as a matter of principle, so I'm going to be working 45 hours a week to be able to afford both food and shelter. So, you know, the cosmos got me in the end, and that's the lesson, I think. You know, forget your solidarity. Even for a month, you get fooled by shiny objects and cozy little Airbnb holiday cottages, and you fall for the, the, the gleaming ceramic veneer grins of the oligarchy, and, you know, the Brits will trick you into indentured servitude and a level of chronic anxiety you didn't even think was possible. You know, that's the, that's the personal update. That's, I'm stuck here. We'll figure out how the show is going to go on, but it will go on because I'm bored and need an outlet. Alright, so whatever. Um, there's only really one more thing I want to talk about today, um, which, you know, I, I kind of alluded to earlier, but it is a bizarrely specific British thing, uh, or it was until a couple of weeks ago, right? Yeah, it's, it's, it's the TERFs, alright? Trans-exclusionary radical feminists. What are the TERFs, and why are they all here? Why, why is this the homeland of the TERFs? Why are all these, like, ostensibly liberal, middle-aged women going this hard on this issue and in like the tens of thousands, all right? It's bizarre. So it's been training in the last couple of weeks because Dave Chappelle decided to use his last stand-up special that he's going to do for the foreseeable future to talk about their, how their LGBT community is going insane cancelling people. He did a few jokes about trans people in a special like, I don't know, three years ago. In this one, he spends at least half of it talking about how LGBT people keep on coming after like the baby and JK Rowling and Kevin Hart and trying to cancel them because they've all been canceled. They've all been canceled by the LGBT community. I mean, I heard they've been canceled. I'm pretty sure the baby is still out there making songs or movies or sculptures or I don't, I don't know who the baby is to be honest, but JK Rowling is still writing all the scripts of those hog shit, fantastic beast movies. Kevin Hart still does his stadium comedy. He still gets cast in like highly mediocre Netflix dramedy films. He even had his own Queeby show, right, called Die Heart, which was pretty successful, I believe, uh, according according to a statement from Queeby, and this is true, this is an actual quote, numerous households streamed the series. Whew, high praise. I don't, I, I don't even think numerous households had Queeby. Yeah, so the, the, these are the victims of the LGBT cancel culture mob. Will they ever recover, having already done so two years ago? But, you know, Dave Chappelle can brand himself a turf if he likes, but the turfs, the real turfs, they're a little more insidious because they actually know how to, like, claim to be speaking in defense and on behalf of women. They've thought about how to frame their issues and women's issues, you know, 
intellectually and discursively, not not necessarily intelligently, but like what they say is that it's it's trans people, it's trans women especially, uh, are doing this, uh, saying they're transgender so that men uh, can muscle in on women's territory now that they've made decades or centuries or millennia of progress on women's rights. You know, enemy elements looking to take advantage of the progress that's been made, which is the most like conspiracy pilled bullshit I've ever heard. And just in the first place, think like like big patriarchy. Big patriarchy, the 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 Illuminati, the yeah, that's I don't know, that's fine. Illuminati has invented this plan to secretly embed uh, agent provocateur, agents provocateur in in your in your uh, local, I don't know, Eversham Young Professional Women's Monthly Breakfast. That that's insane. Like when when Betty Friedan was documenting and like exposing the absolute travesty, the, the existential despair and loss of self-identity of living as a woman in the 1950s and 60s, there were transgender people around then. So what exactly were they taking advantage of? It's like, like imagine seeing a woman who's like, oh, my life is purposeless and unfulfilling and bound to the whims and ego of my husband. And some dude is like, oh God, I just want a piece of that. God, I wish that was me. There's, just, there's documented transgender people for like thousands of years, so it's pretty weird to think that you, your, you are so important, or at least your generation is of such importance and significance that they're coming after you in particular now. But whatever. Like the most generous kind of you know reasoning that I can put to it is that they think that some, they think that trans women are like dollarzarling the female gender. They're, they're doing to, to, to women what Rachel Dolezal did to black people, which, you know, if, if, if people haven't heard of it, what Rachel Dolezal did was pretend to be a black woman for, like, ten years and then managed to, like, make it to a, a local chapter head of the NAACP before people found out she was actually white and had just been getting her hair permed and caking on Dark Foundation for years. And she started doing that because she believed that she was passed over for a teaching position and her art wasn't getting recognised enough because she was white. At one point she tried to sue a university for discrimination against her, you know, racial discrimination because she was white. But to, to apply that logic to transgender people would be if it was, like, incredibly public. You have to tell your friends and your family and your co-workers and everyone else who's ever known you, and anyone who's spent enough time on Tinder will tell you they're generally pretty upfront with it. So it's like they're not trying to deceive you so whatever it's just it like it's not like the 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 absolute slough of people well i say people it's mainly white women who keep being found out to be faking ancestry like in 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 canada like twice a day there's like a story about some high profile academic who's you know been faking tribal heritage there was one just in the last week who was like claiming heritage from like six different tribes and everyone was like well who initiated you into the tribe and like, oh it's a dead person it was a person that died it was a person that my dad knew who died years ago and actually i i do have that cultural heritage why why are you coming at me you should have asked him at the time then there's this latest thing you know i don't know i don't know if people i don't know if this has reached the general public yet but you know there's this thing called did tiktok where where people claiming to have, you know, dissociative identity disorder, multiple personalities, show off their, like, manifested personas. And it was only really a, a, a matter of time before this happened, where we have the first confirmed case of someone claiming to have manifested a black personality, or alter, or whatever, which is, mwah, like, this painfully white girl saying, oh yeah, it's finally happened, guys, I'm so excited. I have a black persona. Ooh. 
I mean, it's so good. It's just like you can't even you can't even give it like the benefit of the doubt because like there's been other cases, other similar cases. I'll say. You know, there was the Tourette's TikTok where there was like a bunch of people who kept thinking they had Tourette's and like started manifesting ticks, TikTok ticks, which which were only and specifically the ticks that they'd seen other people claim to have Tourette's on TikTok doing. The difference here is that unlike Tourette's, which you could kind of, you know, chalk that up to mass hysteria or whatever, people thinking that they have to throw pens and say Heil Hitler or whatever, but there's no way that you can suddenly have DID, just just late in life, late onset DID. So they're just lying. They're just faking it for clout, which is so fucking funny that to have them all just like, we accept you and we love each other. It's like, you are all liars. (laughs) To have DID, you have to have like abhorrent childhood trauma some like epstein meets leatherface nightmare trauma and these people these fucking like zoomer clout chasers are like oh yeah the the aftermath of horrific abuse the 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 literal fragmenting of the psyche to protect itself sounds pretty rad you know I, i might try that out and just do the weirdest form of blackface for a little while yeah you get to honestly watch this space i'm gonna be following this story closely i i have to know if she ends up saying the n-word i you know i think the odds are like three to one two to one she ends up just like everybody keeps telling her can you say the n-word now and she ends up releasing like a six minute long eight part tiktok ted talk that's fun to say tiktok ted talk about why that would never be appropriate and okay to say but she might, and I want to take that bet. Now, that's definitely one of the most deranged cases of race faking, but it's not the funniest, because this is the funniest, all right? There was a, uh, there was a bisexual woman of color working at Vanderbilt College in, in America. And, you know, she was, she was very big on, like, women in STEM, and, you know, uh, she helped her professor start up their own Me Too chapter in, in the university. And, um... You know, people kept accusing this apparently unrelated professor. Oh, you know, sidelining black people and bullying sexual assault victims, even in this Me Too group. And, you know, the, the this bisexual woman of colour kept saying, no, she is actually a great advocate. She's a big advocate for victims and, and, and people of colour. She's the biggest advocate I've ever met in my life. She, she actually might be even more woke than me. And uh, then, unfortunately, during the, the first wave of lockdowns, this bisexual woman of color, uh, she died, all right? She was forced to, to do in-person classes, even even as everyone around the world is starting to lock down. Um, but she was forced to hold in-person classes, even though she wasn't generally a lecturer, and um, and caught COVID and died. And, you know, there was they, they had a vigil for her, for, for this woman, which uh, four people attended, which... W- that's where this thing started to unwrap because because the college was like, well, did somebody die on our staff? Because we don't have any record. Are we still paying someone? Is someone dead and we're still paying them because we don't know? Like, we need to look into this shit. And then, you know, <laughs> because it turned out that the professor she was defending had made her up and was... <laughs> And had just been like, had invented this incredibly complicated backstory about where this fake account had grown up and what she was doing. And then for no reason, they just killed her off. Like, how how did you think that was going to end when you killed off someone and said, I died because of the university? And the university was like, what? 
The university was not going to investigate claims that staff died. Whatever. It, it's just, it was so... Like, the, the New York Times wrote an article on this because it was that deranged. It, like, what is going on with educated white women? <laughs> it's the TERFs in the UK. In North America, it's, it's this shit. It's race faking. It's, it's like, how desperate are you for just a crumb of oppression that you're willing to just, like... The race faking is way funnier because they always get caught. <laughs> they always get caught and they have no ideology that like that like means they did the right thing. They just have to apologize and be like, I need to make amends for what I've done. And it's like, shut up. It's just, it's such a weird and unique form. Like being that desperate for just a crumb of oppression that you're willing to just deceive every single person in your life just to like seem like you're special. And <laughs> Actually, no. I think that makes sense. It's just, maybe that's what they 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 share in common with the 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 UK turfs. You know, is just this knowledge deep down that this group of privileged, educated white women will do whatever they have to to get ahead. Which you know, the concept of getting ahead by turning trans really does not apply to you know transgender people at all. If anything, there's huge, like, social and professional repercussions for just being who they are or expressing who they are. But the white race fakers and the turfs, they absolutely know they would do that if they thought it would give... They would go full Shakespeare and cross-dress if they thought it would give them just the slightest leg up. They they will tape their eyes back, they'll put chopsticks in their buns, shoe polish their faces, give themselves cornrows. Whatever they would have to do to get ahead, they would do it. And they're accusing everyone else of doing it just to get out in front of it. Whatever, whatever combination of Gossip Girl, Gone Girl, Sex in the City, or whatever, whatever shit-tier dramas they've been watching them, has poisoned their brains into thinking they're special, and everyone eventually is going to acknowledge how special they are, and they're being driven insane by the thought that it's not going to happen, so they have to make themselves the victim. And here's where we end up. So, you know, that's it. We've sold it. But I think, I th- I think what really sums it up the, the, the UK turfs is, is th- this story that I found. Uh, this is something that happened in Scotland a few months ago, right? And, and bear in mind, the story is probably biased. So, but yeah, keep that in mind. But here's what happened. So there was a bunch of turfs. Um, what's the collective noun for turfs? A, a gaggle. A, g- a gaggle of turfs. A yoke, a yoke of turfs. Uh, I think skunks is stench. Stench of skunks. So let's say that. A stench of turfs go into this pub, right? They get seated at the table... And the staff immediately recognize them as TERFs because they're all dressed in TERF t-shirts. So, whatever. They're seated, they're served, and they immediately start talking incredibly loudly at their table about the need to exclude trans people from the community. They like they go into the bathrooms, a customer goes in after them, after they've just come out, and finds that they've left a bunch of TERF literature all over the ladies and the cubicles and whatnot. They're leaving shit that says, like, do you trust a man who says in a woman, who says he's a woman, that kind of shit. A customer finds them, goes and complains to the bar staff. Now, by this point, the bar staff have gotten sick of, like, the shit that the women keep saying and have pretty much stopped serving their table, which the other customers are complaining about them. So the bar manager, who is a trans person, who's been watching this all happen and hasn't said anything, in response to the complaints, she goes and tells the women to leave. Now, like, it's, it's a licensed establishment, and the laws in Scotland are the same as Australia. If a manager asks you to leave, you have to leave. It's the law. If you stay any longer, you can get charged for misconduct. But the turfs refuse, and they start arguing with the staff, demanding to be served, 
at which point the police get called and come and remove them from the venue, to which the turf starts screaming how the police shouldn't be doing a bouncer's job or whatever and starts saying they're being arrested for being women with opinions. Now, here's the important part of the story. Like I said, the story is potentially biased. I'm recounting exactly the details of the story. There is no editorialising. These are the details as I read them on a thread that was posted by the turf group. Right, they posted this, this entire story, as a look at the oppression we suffered thing. There's, there's a lot of weirdness here, the fact that they think they're, they're, they're the victims in the case. The fact that they posted the story, yeah, and it's very weird to include the details about like leaving the brochures and that they had their slogans on their t-shirts. I, it's weird to think that that's normal. <clears throat> now, the, 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 the weirdest part to me is, um, you know, how many people liked and shared and reposted the story like tagging their local mps and going like do something about this but based on the premise that the police should not have become involved even if they were breaking the law that that, that was their main thing that the police had come involved and it was a waste of police time and money that was the, the the central thing i've never seen anything like that where it's like oh, yeah, I don't agree with you and what you believe, and you were the clear aggressors and the instigators of that situation, and under the law as written, you had broken the law and were liable to be arrested. But I do agree that that is a waste of government money, yeah. Uh, That's how I know that this is a uniquely British thing, because in any other country, I can't see that working in Australia, where the only people that are going to be that worried about, like, you know, the, the, the state police budget being wasted on these matters... Like, the only people that would accept that argument would be, like, inner western suburbs dads who run their own businesses out of their Audi, or libertarian uncles who make their nieces uncomfortable with a hand on the leg at Christmas. There's No one else is going to buy that. No one else is going to buy that, and that's only, like, 1 or 2% of the population. You know, I, I can't see it happening in America where there's there's just no need to couch it in, in, in fiscal responsibility. The only people that are worried about fiscal responsibility in America are, like, upper-class neoliberals or big business conservatives who, like... You know, they already live in just constant existential fear of being sued for using the wrong word. Every 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 CEO or board member of an, of an oil company or a bank or a private military company just lives in constant fear that it's going to come out that they said the F slur... At a frat party in 1987, they're they're the they're the only people that truly believe in cancel culture, not as a a grift for hack comedians and the dumbest podcasters in the world. They they believe is a genuine threat. They haven't addressed anybody in gendered terms since they saw a Working Girl in the 80s. They're they're too afraid of appearing in 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 any headline that isn't like a profile piece in a magazine called The Modern Investorpreneur where the headline is like, Gillian uh, O'Malley, the face of adequate corporate governance, or, or Ted Stevenson, the shining beacon of data-driven logistical management. They're, they're, they're shadow people. They barely exist in cultural terms. They're never going to take a side or even have an opinion on a culture issue because they're terrified that someone, whether some overly ambitious underling or like a venal petty line manager is going to find that they've said the wrong thing at some point and use it to destroy them. But it does work in the UK, where, like, every opinion you have has to be couched in a book you read or an opinion writer whose ideas you find quite compelling, where, you know, the idea of having basic principles, morality, 
or ethics has to come with an annotated references section. That's the only place where the concept of, well, what impact does the trans community have on the allocation of funding? That's the only place that it's going to be considered a valid debate. <laughs> yes, we were behaving inappropriately, threatening staff and being abusive, but I don't think there was any need for two policemen to show up and escort us out quietly. What's next? A, a paddy wagon rounding up homophobes? A SWAT team at an anti-vax rally? A, a Black Hawk helicopter shredding Islamophobes? It's, it's, it's gone too far. It's political correctness gone mad. Yeah, like I said, there's, there's, there's many things to take away from the story. Like, one could be that weird conservatives who, like, oppose the premise of just not being an argumentative prick in public will always fall back on being the victim, no matter what they're doing. Another takeaway could be, you know... If you don't want the cops called on you, don't break the law. Another one could be, you know, don't expect first-class treatment if you go around wearing shirts you know people might find offensive. Like, I haven't done that. I haven't won my IRA flag once in the UK, and I'll tell you why. Because people might take offence, and even though I know in my heart that they're wrong and they're anti-Jeltic racists, it's not really worth the trouble just so I can tweet out some shit later like, oh... Just got glassed in an Ulsterite loyalist pub just, just just for having an opinion. I'm not going into jazz clubs wearing my Ain't No Black in the Union Jack poncho so I can go on Piers Morgan's New Breakfast show. I'm not wearing a white genocide embroidered derby hat outside of Nando's. I'm not even wearing my Adam, Adam and Steve should be put to death for buggery leg warmers out of the park bench at midnight because I don't think that... A guest column in the opinion page of the Daily Mail is is worth it. Now, those are all good takeaways, but they're not the main one. The main lesson of this story is don't be a prick to the bar staff, all right? If you can't respect that people getting paid £9 an hour to watch other people have a better time than them, that they just don't want to put up with you making an ass of yourself and they aren't obliged to, then, you know, fuck off. Not, not just turfs, not just racist or sexist or whatever. I mean, just generally, if you tell a bartender that their service is too slow... Don't be surprised to find yourself being escorted out. If you can't politely inform them that they got your drink order wrong, then off you go into the street. But, you know, but but if, if somehow you find yourself being served by somebody you, say, actively advocate taking the rights away from, just shut the fuck up about it. <laughs> like, if you, if you can't just act like a normal person in public, if you can't just sit down, shut up, and handle your drink then yeah, you deserve, as far as I'm concerned, you deserve the, the Tash Peterson treatment. You get banned from every licensed venue in the country and then put in a gulag, preferably. Uh, that's it on TERFs. I, I, don't, I, st I don't know why they're here. I'm still not sure what it is they want, but, you know, it's a free country, ostensibly, even if they're still royalty here, which kind of flies in their face. But we're, we're, we're all equal. So whatever dumb shit you think, whatever reason you think about it, I don't care. Just as long as you can just behave like a normal person in the meantime, okay? All right. That's, uh, that's going to be about it for me. That's the, that's the Brit special. And, you know, once again, if, uh, if, if any Brits were offended by what I said, you know, my B. But honestly, I, I really pulled my punches here. <laughs> I didn't even mention the banking executives grooming children over Discord. But uh, no, whatever. I'm done for now. Uh, trapped in England, still alive, don't want to be. Was that a syntax error? No, I wish I was dead. Good night, everybody. I was born on a Dublin street where the loyal drums did beat. The loving English feet that walked all over us. And every single night when me dad would come home tight, he'd invite the neighbours out with this chorus. 
Come on, shake my leg and dance. Come on, get and fight me like a man. Show 